Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about prostate cancer with Dr. Preston Sprenkel. Dr. Sprenkel is an associate professor of urology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. So Preston, maybe we can start off by you telling us a bit more about yourself and what it is you do. Sure. So I, um, I'm a urologic oncologist, so I do urologic cancer surgeries, um, and I treat primarily men with prostate cancer, and my clinical practice focuses on the diagnosis of prostate cancer as well as its management. And so, you know, I think our audience has heard a lot about prostate cancer. It seems pretty ubiquitous. Some of the questions that I think always come up um, include a number of things. So first off, the screening for prostate cancer, that that always seems like a bit of a moving target. Um you know, back in the day, it was with digital rectal exams, then it was PSAs, then there it was, well, maybe we don't need to do screening for everybody. Can you kind of tell us what is the latest in terms of screening for prostate cancer? Who needs it? How often? And with what? Those are great questions. And you're right, it does remain controversial to a certain extent. I think the recommendations to not screen for prostate cancer were really a reflection of our practice at the time um, where we were treating men with low-grade prostate cancer. And we were really kind of over-diagnosing and over-treating prostate cancer. So people who didn't need identification and didn't need treatment were having their prostate cancer treated. Um, Where we are now is we have much more information about prostate cancer, about the factors that are associated with high-risk prostate cancer, and which are prostate cancers that we need to treat. So in terms of screening, PSA blood test screening is the mainstay, and it is the most important thing that we can use for evaluating for prostate cancer. When to start that varies depending on different guidelines, but the NCCN early detection of prostate cancer guidelines recommend consideration of a single PSA test as early as age 45 or even as early as age 40 in men with some higher risk features such as family history, genetic conditions known to put men at increased risk of developing prostate cancer. Um, But that does not necessarily mean that these men need to have PSAs then on an annual basis. It is risk stratified in terms of how frequent PSA testing and prostate cancer screening needs to occur. And so, um, so, but every man um, after the age of 45 should get PSA testing. How frequently should that be? So it really depends on the result. Um, so for men with a very low PSA test at the age of 45, they can then safely defer another PSA test for four to five years. Um, if their PSA is elevated, those are the men, which is actually, it's pretty rare, but for a PSA to be elevated at that age means that that man is at an increased risk of developing prostate cancer at some time in the next five to 10 years. And so we want to follow their PSA more closely. Um, so it's really a risk adapted kind of model based on the PSA value. 
And so once, at what point do you kind of get worried that the PSA is so high that you're concerned about a potential prostate cancer and further imaging and or biopsy is warranted? Yeah, so the initial cutoff, and and we try not to actually use cutoffs because there is no specific cutoff that is correct, but a higher PSA has a higher risk of their a prostate cancer being detected on subsequent evaluation. But in general, for a PSA over the level of three, we would suggest further evaluation, whether that is a repeat PSA, an additional sort of what we call second generation PSA or urine-based test to a further risk stratify um, if a prostate cancer may be, there may be concern for a prostate cancer. And then if there is, um, we often will utilize a prostate MRI to even further characterize someone's risk before going towards a prostate biopsy. And a prostate biopsy is really the only definitive way to determine if a prostate cancer is present. So all these other tests, PSA blood tests, urine tests, MRI, those help inform whether a biopsy is needed and where that biopsy should be targeted in the case of MRI. It gives us that information as well. And then once a patient has a biopsy, that can confirm the diagnosis of a prostate cancer. But our understanding now is that one size isn't isn't the same as all. Uh, in other words, there are some very low-risk prostate cancers that can be effectively followed with active surveillance versus other prostate cancers that might be more aggressive that warrant further management. Can you talk a little bit about how you kind of navigate those nuances? Absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, the overdiagnosis is not doing all of this testing and the biopsies in people whose PSA is low. And the overtreatment is recognizing exactly as you just said that there are some or many cancers that do not need treatment. Um, we have a grading scale for prostate cancer once it has been diagnosed. And again, this is based off of the biopsy information. But that grading scale is five is a five-point scale where one is low and five is high. And really pretty routinely grade one disease is not treated. And there are some men with grade two disease that also do not need treatment. And so again, it's risk stratified and very we try to personalize it to the cancer grade, but also the, the man's um, wishes. And because any treatment that we have can have side effects um, on urinary function, sexual function, even bowel function. Um, I think there's a very interesting study that just was published in the New England Journal, I believe it was last week, with now 15 years of follow-up of a randomized trial comparing men who were randomized to surgery to radiation treatment or to an active monitoring. And with now 15 years of follow-up, they saw, saw no difference in prostate cancer specific survival or overall survival. And this is consistent with what we have been learning is that many men are overtreated for their prostate cancer. And the goal of treatment is not a quick fix. It's not something that is going to result in an improvement in the short term. We now are seeing that even within 15 years, we may not see a survival benefit associated with treatment of men with predominantly that low and intermediate risk prostate cancer. 
So in that trial, did they include people who were more in that high-risk group? So there were a few. So there was about a third of the patients had intermediate or high-risk prostate cancer, um, but it's not really broken down more specifically than that. But about two-thirds were in the low-risk group. Um, We do have other studies, not this randomized trial, that do show a benefit to treatment in men with high-risk prostate cancer. So we still, there still is a need for treatment, um, but I think it reinforces why or how it is important to stratify patients and not be hasty to treat those with low and sort of favorable intermediate risk disease. Yeah. I mean, because it kind of, if there is no difference in survival, it it kind of begs the question, why go looking for it to begin with? It's a very good question. You're absolutely right. But when we think about, you know, if there are studies that demonstrate for that high risk group that there is a benefit for treatment, my understanding is that treatment continues to evolve and that it's not necessarily the radical surgeries that we've kind of heard about in the past, which may, you know, result in incontinence or uh, impotence and all kinds of things like that. Can you kind of give us the landscape of what prostate cancer treatment looks like these days and what some of the options are? Yes, definitely. The, you know, you're right. The landscape is changing. Um, Surgery to remove the entire prostate and radiation treatment to treat the entire prostate remain the gold standards because those are the therapies that we've had around for the longest. But both of them are definitely plagued by significant side effects associated with that, um, with the benefit of treatment. Newer treatments um, are generally called ablative therapies or where we use energy to destroy the prostate tissue because many of them are done in a more targeted fashion and more localized in the prostate. We are able to control the areas of treatment a little bit more precisely and limit the damage to the structures that relate to urinary continence, sexual function, um, and even sort of bowel function. And this is, they're still considered investigational, pretty much all of these therapies, because they are not ready for any practitioner to perform. Um, but there is definitely a significant amount of research and interest in increasing evidence of their effectiveness and um, definitely a decreased impact on, as you mentioned, erectile dysfunction with treatment or urinary incontinence with treatment. So tell us more about what exactly these um, investigational uh, treatments are, how they work, and whether there's any kind of clinical trials that are ongoing. You know, it may be that it's not ready for prime time, but hopefully it's being investigated so that if it does hold promise, it might one day become a standard of care. Yes. Um, we hope that it someday will be part of the standard of care regimen uh, of what is available for patients to choose from. The current evidence, I mean, I think an important thing to recognize is because we are doing a, in many cases, targeted therapy. So we're trying to just treat the area where the prostate cancer is located and not treat the entire prostate, similar to a lumpectomy and breast cancer versus a radical mastectomy. By doing that, we are leaving tissue behind. So we recognize that there may be a slight increased risk of cancer recurrence because we're leaving other prostate tissue that could develop a cancer in the future. 
but by doing that we can can preserve those vital structures and so there are many different types of energy some use heat some use cold some use electricity um, the main ones that have been around the longest include cryoablation which uses cold energy to um, to freeze the prostate tissue and really destroy the cells there are treatments that generate heat so focal laser ablation uses a laser fiber to generate heat and similarly kill the cells high intensity focused ultrasound use ultrasound waves to generate heat and destroy the cells um, there are clinical trials locally here in connecticut some offered at yale um, that include a transurethral ultrasound so tulsa um, is the sort of acronym and it uses an ultrasound probe in the urethra actually which increases the ability to treat the entire prostate and there are actually a randomized trial comparing surgery to the tulsa procedure to treat um treat men with intermediate risk prostate cancer. Wow. So interesting. Lots of uh, options for ablative therapy. We're going to take a short break right now for a medical minute. But on the other side, we'll learn more about these new prostate cancer treatment advances with my guest, Dr. Preston Sprinkle. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital where their prostate and urologic cancers program comprises a multi-specialty team dedicated to managing the diagnosis, evaluation, and treatment of urologic cancer. SmiloCancerHospital.org There are over 16.9 million cancer survivors in the U.S. and over 240,000 here in Connecticut. Completing treatment for cancer is a very exciting milestone, but cancer and its treatment can be a life-changing experience. The return to normal activities and relationships may be difficult, and cancer survivors may face other long-term side effects of cancer, including heart problems, osteoporosis, fertility issues, and an increased risk of second cancers. Resources for cancer survivors are available at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as the Yale Cancer Center and its Milo Cancer Hospital, to keep cancer survivors well and focused on healthy living. The Smilo Cancer Hospital Survivorship Clinic focuses on providing guidance and direction to empower survivors to take steps to maximize their health, quality of life, and longevity. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Preston Sprinkle. We're discussing recent advances in the management of prostate cancer patients. And right before the break, Preston, you were telling us about some of these newer focal ablative treatments, whether using cold or using hot or using ultrasound, to kind of kill off prostate cancer in a way that avoids the bigger surgeries and radiation and so on that still is the mainstay of treatment, but maybe these newer focal ablative treatments, which are currently under investigation, may become a standard of care in the future. So I have a couple of questions for you just about the ablative therapies themselves. One is, you know, when we think about prostate cancer, 
oftentimes, as you mentioned before the break, you know, we will get an MRI um, to kind of look at where that prostate cancer is. So do these ablative treatments use some kind of imaging to really target where you're going to focus that energy so that you at least have a guide as to where you're going to kill off these cells? I mean, with radical surgery, you take out the whole gland, so you kind of know that you've got it. But what about with these focal ablative treatments? Well, the introduction of prostate MRI, or I should say the increased use of it and the ability for us to do targeted prostate biopsies and fusions or MR-guided prostate biopsies is what allowed us to begin and to consider these focal ablation therapies. So around 2015 or so is when we really started to see prominence of the use of MRI for prostate cancer diagnosis and targeting. We can very well see lesions within the prostate. We confirm their location and grade with a prostate biopsy or a targeted biopsy. And what studies have shown is about 80% of the time, there is what we call an index lesion. So there's one main area of cancer within the prostate. And we can then with these targeted therapies or focal therapies, treat that area of the prostate. Uh, we visually see it with the MRI. We can identify its location within the prostate sort of three-dimensionally. Um, many of the treatments do use, or some of them use MRI for targeting. So the Tulsa device, as I mentioned, that treatment is performed inside an MRI scanner. So we actually have the MRI on, it does an imaging of the prostate and then is used for real-time tracking of treatment and, and MRI thermometry to, to monitor the treatment and treatment success. Um, but even when we're not using that, so for cryoablation or irreversible electroporation. It's a long name, but it uses electricity to destroy the tissue. Uh, we use the MRI as a reference, but then have real-time ultrasound that allows us to visualize the prostate in the area that we want to treat. Um, I think that the very often these are called focal therapies. I think that's a little bit of a misnomer. Uh, we are trying to treat the area with cancer, but we do know that to achieve adequate cancer control, we still need to have approximately a one centimeter margin. So it is not so focal. We're not down to the millimeter level. There is a one centimeter margin around a visible lesion that we try to treat to make sure that we have excellent cancer control. Which brings me to my next question, which is, you know, as we've kind of seen prostate cancer management move more and more towards non-operative um, and even just active surveillance uh, where we, we don't need to treat at all. Has anybody really looked to see, even if you do have a high-grade lesion in the prostate, you know, how much, how often do you find um, other areas of either prostate cancer or pre-invasive uh, lesions that would increase risk outside of that one centimeter zone? Yeah, no, you're correct. And and those numbers currently are about 80 to 85%. So 80 to 85% of the time when we ablate a lesion, we see it, there's something that is higher grade, just sort of on one side of the prostate, we treat that 80 to 85% of the time that is going to eliminate all of the significant cancer that we have to worry about. So I think for many people that is 
a high enough number uh, to have a treatment that's 85% effective, but to have minimal impact on their urinary function and sexual function, um, many men are willing to sort of take that 15% risk that they may need another treatment in the future. And with these ablation therapies, we can also repeat them. Um, and they could still do surgery, could still do radiation. So really not burning any significant bridges by attempting these kind of therapies first. And for those gentlemen who don't want to take that 10 to 15% risk, are there options to consolidate therapy with something else? So thinking back to the breast cancer analogy, frequently when we do a lumpectomy, the way that we get local control in the rest of the breast is we add radiation. So you no longer need the big surgery. Um, you can have the smaller surgery plus radiation. So for people who don't want to take that 15% risk of um of local failure, is that an option? So it's not currently in clinical practice. Uh, that is something where we have, I am aware of some people that are either writing it up or starting some trials to evaluate that. Um, I think that you're absolutely right. That is a, an important concept that uh, the people are thinking about, but I have not heard of it in practice yet. Yeah. And then finally, you know, I find so often what happens in one cancer kind of uh, has ripple effects in other cancers as we all try to learn from each other as we try to advance cancer management. One of the things that's now being looked at in breast cancer is doing even less. Can we, can we, you know, manage um, some breast cancers non-operatively? Um, so can we just do multiple? biopsies, um, and, and not treat at all. Is there any consideration to not getting that one centimeter margin of prostate cancer with the idea being, well, you know, in that latest New England Journal trial that you mentioned, there were some high-risk patients in there. Um, and, you know, survival rates were the same, albeit that they didn't look at that particular subset. Is there any thought to, you know, just leaving prostate cancer alone and maybe following it or, or treating it even in a more minimally invasive way? Those are all, those are, that's a great, uh, a great thought. I mean, I think where we are seeing that currently is for men with low risk prostate cancer, we do not treat, we just follow them with periodic biopsies on active surveillance. We're increasing the sort of cohort or number of people that we feel comfortable following in that surveillance. And so now favorable intermediate risk. So it used to be only low risk. Now many of us feel more comfortable including favorable intermediate risk people in that group. Um, and, you know, there definitely is ongoing research and we're looking for a trigger. Um, you know, what is an appropriate threshold above which treatment should be indicated? And maybe it is observation is all we, we need for many of these men. Um, and the idea of shrinking the margins, fortunately, with the uh, many of the ablation therapies, you know, we are very mindful and, and the goal is to spare this sexual function and urinary function. So often we will discuss with the patient compromising those margins in those areas um, to try to preserve function. So that is ongoing, uh, but I have not seen any prospective data to evaluate that yet. Yeah. What about systemic therapy for prostate cancer? Um, where are we um, with that? Who who needs systemic therapy? What are the toxicities? And 
Is there any thought to using systemic therapy alone versus local therapies, which could potentially impact um, sexual function, urinary function, incontinence, et cetera? Yeah, that's a great question. Unfortunately, the systemic therapies tend to be more toxic. So our baseline sort of leading systemic therapy is androgen deprivation therapy, which is removing the male sex hormone of testosterone. And when we do that, that results in fatigue, decrease in libido, um, decrease in interest in sex, decrease in sexual function can cause hot flashes. So many men find that some men tolerate it very well, but many men find it pretty significant. And that is sort of our lowest entry level treatment with the least side effects going further with additional systemic therapies tend to um, kind of ramp that up a little bit. So we try to avoid that. The people who typically will need that therapy are those with higher risk. So unfavorable intermediate or high risk prostate cancer, or definitely those with metastatic disease. Um, And it can be either temporary or in the case of patients with metastatic disease, we often will start that therapy and it will be uh, perpetual. So that's something that once started, they stay on it. For patients who are screened and they've got low risk disease or favorable intermediate risk disease, and they're on active surveillance, at what point, um, at one point do you either stop active surveillance or how frequently do they flip into that, okay, we need to actively manage this now, either with a focal ablative therapy or surgery or radiation? I mean, if you have low-risk disease, are you kind of out of the woods or um, how frequently are you out of the woods? Yeah, so that, that that's, that's also a very good question. So I think it depends on where you start with active surveillance. So there are some men that have very low-risk prostate cancer, uh, some with sort of low and some with favorable intermediate, and their progression rates are all different. In the longer series for active surveillance, um, we're seeing that around 50 to 60% of men remain on active surveillance uh, 10 years into the future. Um, so a pretty significant number are able to remain on surveillance in the, that recently published update on the protect trial. So even in men who were randomized to the observation or active monitoring group by 15 years, 24% of them. And again, this included intermediate and maybe even some high risk patients, um, 24% of them remained treatment free. So they never had any treatment. So I think that, you know, there's definitely a percentage of people who do not need to be treated ever. Which is, which is fabulous, except, you know, the pessimists in the crowd might flip that and say, yeah, but that means that 76% of people would. Um, When we think about the options now that might be coming down the pike in terms of focal ablative therapy, do you think that there would be any benefit in treating those low risk or favorable intermediate risks with what is hopefully uh, turns out to be a fairly non-toxic local therapy, would that get them out of the woods? I just think about the anxiety that patients have kind of sitting on a cancer diagnosis and some of them might feel like, okay, this is a bit of a ticking time bomb. It's just a matter of time and whether or not you know, I'm going to be in the 24% or whether I'm going to be in the 76% in terms of needing additional therapy. Right. No, I I think 
we do. There have been some trials geared in that direction, looking at the low-risk prostate cancer, um, and intervention did delay the time to any additional intervention, which is, I guess, what we would hope. But I think again that trial included people with intermediate and high-risk disease, and. Knowing that more than fifty percent of people can, it does. It, it takes it takes time and effort to sort of reassure people. But if we know that within fifteen years or even twenty years, it's unlikely that someone is going to have death from their prostate cancer. So you could argue that we were treating too early in some of those seventy six percent, and they may not have needed it. Dr. Preston Sprankel is an associate professor of urology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.